Well, it is good for us to be in worship together this morning. Uh, if you're newer with us, uh, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. And so I would invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, today to Genesis chapter 1, uh, both here in the West as well as those in the East, and uh, to Lovington as well. And uh, exciting day. All the page numbers match in all locations, uh, making things a little easier on all of us. So we take our wins where we can get them. And so we are beginning a new series entitled In the Beginning as we're going to walk through the book of Genesis over the next several weeks. And to accompany this sermon series, uh, we're inviting you to read through the book of Genesis uh, where each week we'll have readings that uh, set us up for the next weekend's sermon. And so for the next weekend, we're going to be reading chapters 1 through 11. And if you would like reminders for those readings uh, via text, you can sign up for that. Uh, If you're not already a part of the church's texting service, simply by texting First Decatur to 24587. Then at the top of each week, we'll just send you what those readings are uh, for the, the week to come. But good news is we're in class today. And so you get to do a little bit of your homework before you go home. You ever remember that in school or those of you in school, it's like you got homework, but you got some extra time so you can work on it ahead of time. And so, yes, you have chapters one through 11 here this week, but obviously we're going to get started in Genesis today. So you can get a little bit of head start on your reading homework. So with that, Genesis chapter one, starting in verse one, I invite you to follow along with me. It says this, in the beginning, God, and we're going to stop right there. Uh, actually, I'm going to leave the rest of verse 1, the rest of chapter 1, and the next 10 chapters that take you to chapter 11 for you to do at home. So <laughs> we didn't get real far on the homework, but that, there's some intentionality behind that in that before we get to the creation, if you will, that before there was a creation, there was and is and always has been the creator, Uh, that before time itself began, there is and was and always will be timeless God. And then after God, he, we have the beginning, we have Genesis. That's what Genesis literally means. It means origins or beginnings. And so we will discover in the weeks and the readings ahead the origin of creation, the origin of man, the origin of even the creation of time itself. But before we start with the start, we have to start with God. We start with the author. And we understand that everything we're going to understand in the book of Genesis, in the scriptures, in our life, starts with, ends with, and the through line through it all is the author of it. And that is God himself. And so if I could borrow a line uh, from A.W. Tozer as to why we start, end, and see God in all things, uh, I I would borrow this line from him. He says it this way. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now what that means is, or why that's true, is because when we Well, I guess if we start with God as we're saying our highest authority, our sole authority on how it is uh, that we're to live and to define who it is that we are, that when we think about this authority, when we think about this ultimate leader in our life, when we think about God, when we follow God, when we worship God, what we want to be sure about, what we're seeing, what we're thinking about, who we're following is actually the God of the Bible rather than maybe a God that we've 
thought up, a God that we imagine, a God that's based on our own opinions, our own thoughts, or at worst, our own desires, that we might create a God that is uh, in the image of our own ideas, to which Romans 1 uh, and the Ten Commandments warn us against, that in doing so, we are worshiping a created thing, a created image, rather than the creator. And so as a church, it's essential that we are always coming back to center, that we are always giving attention and intention in all that we do to make sure that we are focusing on God from the beginning and making sure that that focus of God is understood based on the God of the Holy Scriptures, his word to us. And so we're excited uh, for some ways in which we can encourage you in this today before we get into uh, the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, if you will. Uh, But also it's an exciting day uh, in our family ministry area where we are starting uh, a new curriculum that is giving uh, emphasis and added attention and really elevating some ideas of what it means for us to start with and see everything that we uh, approach in family ministries and frankly throughout the whole church um, through the true God lens. And so that curriculum that starts next weekend, uh, this is kind of cool for all of us for as a church who wants to see the next generation uh, be raised uh, to follow God accurately, if you will, is called the Gospel Project. And the Gospel Project, it's gonna serve uh, in our family ministry to, uh, you could say, give us an elevation of two key commitments that we already have here as a church and in our family ministries and everything that we do. Um, And so we're gonna share a little bit about that today. But before we get into that, you might start to say, okay, something about family ministries. And I don't want you to dismiss it because uh, what we're gonna look at has uh, a lot to do with everyone in the room. First off, uh, just as a thank you uh, that you are a church, that even if you don't have kids and uh, youth and family ministries, that you are a church that absolutely supports and rally arounds uh, the reality that we all want the next generation uh, to become devoted followers of Jesus Christ, not as just kids, but into adulthood as well. Uh, But more so, as it relates specifically to you today, these two commitments that we're elevating in our family ministries are the same two commitments that we need to give attention to and intention to in our own development as we become the mission of our church, the mission of you and me, more devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so whether you're single, married, without children, an empty nester, or widowed, a kid yourself, a college student, uh, retired, for, for all of us to uh, maybe borrow from Mel Torme's, uh The Christmas Song Made More Famous by Nat King Cole, this is for kids from one to 92. Okay, maybe you know that song, maybe you don't. Um, and so two commitments we're gonna look at to elevate uh, both family ministry and again to all of us as we elevate these areas of our own life to our devotion in Jesus Christ. Number one is our commitment, our commitment to reading and reflecting on scripture. We have a commitment to make sure that in everything we do, we are always reading, focusing on, and reflecting on scripture. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be hard, that's why we have a reading plan that goes with our sermon series. That's why you would be hard pressed to find a sermon that doesn't start, there might be a few, but for the most part, when you walk in and we sit down, hey, I'm Brian, turn in your Bibles too. We always start with, end with, and see as a through line, our authority of the scriptures as to who and how we understand our God. And that goes beyond just the weekend service. Uh, we did a, a survey study, a, a national survey study as a congregation a number of years ago, and some of you might have been around for that, called the Spiritual Life Survey, the Spiritual Life Study. And it revealed, it was aiming to show uh, what it is in our lives that most, um, 
you could say, perpetuate forward our devotion to Jesus Christ. And in the area of personal practices, the number one factor that has an influence on all levels of spirituality, they measured four levels, everything from new to Christ to walking uh, with Christ you know, at a, a very deep level, across all levels of spirituality, the number one influencer on our development as a personal practice to follow Jesus was reading and reflecting on scripture. Number one. In fact, it was so much the first place uh, situation that it's second place runner up uh, it, that, that reading the Bible more than doubled uh, whatever it was that was second. It would be like, you know, the car that wins the Indy 500, you know, on that 500th mile. It would be like the winner beating the second place car by 250 miles. Uh, and then some. That's, that's how uh, far and above the role of reading and reflecting scripture has on our devotion and our development to following Jesus. And so we put that into practice in, in all kinds of ways in the life of our church. Uh, further research, as it looks not just as adults, but also in kids, are revealing uh, these same kinds of things. Lifeway, they did a study of key predictors in kids' devotion to Jesus Christ, not just as kids, but we could say more importantly, as it played out into adulthood. Because uh, we're not raising kids, we're raising adults, right? And so Lifeway interviewed parents of 3,473 adult children where the results of all these kids, the 100% who started out in church as kids, 50% of those adults uh, the, that were children under these, uh, these parents either no longer identified as Christian, and that was 11% of the study, or said that they were still Christian, but they participated in no spiritual practices that reflected that statement. So no involvement in church or prayer or reading the Bible, and that was 39%. And so that's half of the kids who grew up in church. You could say when they graduated from high school, also graduated from their faith as well. But on the other side, the 50% that did remain uh, in their faith, both uh, in statement and in practice, of the 15 predictors that identified Christian devotion into adulthood, the number one of the 15 predictors that they identified by a long shot was, no surprise, reading the Bible. And furthermore, the study concluded that of those kids who continued in their Christian devotion into adulthood, those who regularly read the Bible ended up with a 12.5% higher spiritual health score, if you will, than those who didn't read the Bible as kids. And so when it relates to what we're doing in our family ministries, I'm excited to share with you all as parents, adults, aunts, uncles, grandparents, or people who don't have kids, just knowing that we're a church that's investing in the next generation, that uh, the, the content and the curriculum that we're starting this week in the Gospel Project is gonna elevate uh, this understanding. And we're gonna be looking at a systematic walk. The way in which the curriculum approaches is a systematic walkthrough from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, all the way through the Bible with weekly reading and studies, uh, readings and study, uh, that's gonna walk through that uh, course of the scriptures over the course of three years. And at each age level with appropriate curriculum, content and application for each of those stages of development for our kids. And so we're excited, we are inviting families, you know, babies, pre-K, elementary, junior high and high school, all the way through to intersect time and time again on this three-year cycle, time and time again with the totality of what is the timeless word of God. And we do that even as the times 
change with their development. And so it's an exciting approach that, that we, uh, that really, it's something we've always done to be intentional from birth to graduation and beyond, uh, but we're really excited to elevate that in some new ways. And so that's our, that's our commitment in our family ministry, but also, as you know, as a church, it's our number one commitment when it comes to our personal practice that we are getting into God's word, both in here and between the weekends, okay? So that's our first commitment. It's a, a commitment to regularly reading and reflecting on the scriptures. And then our second commitment that really accompanies, you could say, the reading of the Bible is how we read the Bible. And that our second commitment is what we would call a commitment as a church to a gospel-centered hermeneutic. We're committed to a gospel-centered hermeneutic to which everybody's like a herma what? Now, a hermeneutic is just a $10 seminary word that is essentially a philosophy of one's approach to biblical interpretation. Uh, Simply put, your hermeneutic is the way that you understand, it's the way you interpret the Bible. You could say it's the lens through which you view the scriptures and understand them and interpret them. And the way in which we wanna make sure we are accurately and appropriately viewing the scriptures is through a gospel-centered lens. And again, this is for ages one to 92 and beyond. And so just a few, you could say, checkpoints for us when it comes to how we read our Bible as a church. Number one, or A, if you will, as I'm lining it up on the, on the graphics there, that we understand the Bible Number one, as the revelation of God, that this is the revealing of God's word. Now, to many of us, that just might seem automatic, but not everybody views the scriptures, not everyone looks through the lens as the word of God for us that's alive and active and interacting with our lives. And so we start with, this is the word of God, and that's why it's authoritative in everything that we do. B, we start with, as we stated in the beginning, the author, that as the word of God, that we understand what we are reading through the lens of the author, through God, that God is, uh, or as we said at the beginning, the A.W. Tozer quote, that what's most important about us is what comes to our mind, what we think about when we think about God. And then C, we would say that the most important thing that we need to think about when we think about God is Jesus Christ is God that he is God in the flesh, that he is God incarnate. Colossians 1.19 says it this way. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. And then he is the gospel. He is the good news. That's what the gospel literally means, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is painted in the rest of Colossians, that verse there. And through him, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, that's the gospel, to to, to reconcile things to himself, you and me who were once sinners far from God, now are brought to God through his death on the cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so for us as a church, Again, ages one to 92 and beyond, you could say A plus B plus C equals D. The gospel is our hermeneutic, that when you add it together, God as revealed in Jesus Christ, as based on our authority that we read and understand in scripture, that our hermeneutic, our lens through which we view the scriptures is 
the scripture, or excuse me, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could explain it this way, that when you read the Bible, when you understand the Bible as a totality, you could think of it in three parts. I think we tend to think of it maybe in two parts. So you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But um, a more helpful understanding for me and hopefully for you is to understand the Bible maybe in three parts, where yes, we have the Old Testament, but all of the Old Testament points to, you could say, the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that those are the accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching for us. And then, over, you could say, built on or overflowing from the Gospels is the rest of the New Testament, okay? So you got the Old Testament, which leads to the Gospels, that overflows into the New Testament. You could say that the Gospels are, are like a magnet that pull together the Old and the New Testament, pointing to and leading from in both ways. For example, in the Old Testament, uh, we see Jesus quoting the Old Testament in Luke 24. Uh, this is after he's died and risen from the grave, and he shows himself to a couple of disciples on a, on a road to Emmaus. You might be familiar with that story. And as he's walking with these two disciples, uh, he says this, uh, or it says this of that conversation in verse 27 of Luke 24, that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus basically working through what we now call the Old Testament. He, Jesus, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, and so then we get to the Gospels. And then the rest of the New Testament is made up of uh, epistles or letters written to churches to encourage the church to live out uh, what we saw Jesus paint, you could say, in the Gospels. 2 Corinthians 11 is one of those letters. Uh, it's a, it was a letter that was written to the church at Corinth that points to the gospel in this way. The apostle Paul wrote that letter. It says this, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cousin, cunning, uh, and that's a reference to Genesis 3, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit other than the spirit you received, or here it is, a different gospel from the one that you accepted, and he's saying to this church, well, you put up with it easily enough, meaning church at Corinth, you are far too easily putting up with the wrong lens, the wrong hermeneutic when it comes to what's taking place among you. Facing a similar challenge at the church of Galatia, Paul says it this way, as we've already said, and so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. That anything other than a gospel hermeneutic is to miss the point of all of what scripture is pointing to and flowing from. In that gospel of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to give attention and intention to, uh, that is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, died uh, as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins that separated us from God and thus reconciling to himself through his forgiveness, through his blood on the cross, you and me into a relationship with God, both in this life and for all of eternity, made possible by the new life that he demonstrated in rising from the grave three days later. Okay, And so that's how we view the scriptures, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, isn't that kind of 
already what we all already do. Like, isn't it kind of obvious that when we read the scriptures that we understand it through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, well, you might think so. I mean, it seems obvious. I mean, we all know that, in fact, Jesus is the ultimate Sunday school answer. Like, if you've ever sat through Sunday school or slept in Sunday school and then been woken up in the middle and said, you know, Brian, what do you think? Jesus? That's right. How do you know it's right? Because Jesus is the answer, right? I mean, we've seen it on bumper stickers, seen it on billboards, Jesus is the answer. Well, what's the question? Doesn't matter. Jesus is the answer. But we, we know that Jesus is the answer. He is supposed to be the lens, and so it seems automatic. It seems default. It seems like, of course, this is how we understand the scriptures. This is how we understand everything. But um, might I warn us all that seeing and viewing and understanding the scriptures through the lens of the gospel is not, you could say, as automatic as we might tend to think. It's not as a default as we want to believe. Uh, and while there are various ways in which we can veer or drift from the gospel lens when it comes to reading the scriptures, I would say that the most prevalent or one of the most prevalent in our day within the church would be the temptation to, you could say, view the scriptures through a moralistic lens rather than the gospel lens. That we can sometimes view the scriptures through a, a moralistic lens versus a gospel lens. And rather than try to explain that, let me give you an example of how that can happen. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Hercules and the Wagoner. Uh, and if you're not, I'll share it with you here today. It goes like this. A farmer was driving his wagon along a country road after a heavy rain. The horses could hardly drag the load through the deep mud and at last came to a standstill when one of the wheels sank all the way to the hub in a rut. The farmer climbed down from his seat, stood beside the wagon, looked at it, but without making the least effort to get it out of the rut, all he did was curse his bad luck and called loudly on Hercules to come to his aid. Then Hercules appeared saying, put your shoulder to the wheel, man and urge on your horses. Do you think you can move the wagon by simply looking at it and whining about it? Hercules will not help unless you make some effort to help yourself. And when the farmer put his shoulder to the wheel and urged on the horses, the wagon moved very readily, and soon the farmer was riding along, riding along in great content and with a good lesson learned. Or, we might say, a good moral of the story learned. And the moral of the story is heaven helps those who help themselves. Or, as has been hijacked and misappropriated to a verse in the Bible which doesn't exist, God helps those who help themselves. It actually comes from one of Aesop's fables, of which, no, no disrespect to Aesop's fables, I mean, they worked really well for Abraham Lincoln, I'm sure they could work well for us, uh, but they are designed to be interpreted through a moralistic lens, that we're supposed to ask the question, what is the moral of the story? Whether it's the story of Hercules and the Wagoner or the boy who cried wolf and you know, not, not lying and things like that, that's all fair enough. But the danger is when we let the interpretation of a moralistic lens dip into our interpretation of the scriptures, when it's designed not to be interpreted through a moralistic lens, but again, with all the magnet pooling to the gospel lens. Uh, for example, here's how this plays out. Next week, 
we will get into uh, a little more of Genesis than the first four words, and we will encounter the story of Adam and Eve, where uh, basically the quick version, Adam and Eve are the first people created by God. Uh, God says, uh, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, they are then you know, deceived by Satan, and they eat, and they sin, and, uh, and, and, all, and it kind of goes bad from there. Uh, and so to this point, uh, I came across a teaching on Genesis 3 uh, that had as its teaching points the morals of the story. And so this, is a, this isn't a church, this is a setting, this is the teaching that they had. Life gets tougher when you don't do what is right. Don't listen to a liar, especially when he doesn't have your best interest at heart. You can't hide from your mistakes and you shouldn't blame others for your mistakes. Now, hearing each of those points, if you will, I don't think any of us would necessarily disagree with any of those principles. I mean, they have some general truth within them, but do not miss, they are not the point of Genesis chapter three. They are not the point, they are not the lens to which we are to understand what we are reading here. The lens, when you put on the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what we see holistically within the scriptures is that Adam, well, he's the first man ever to be created without sin, but he's not the last man. There would be a second man who would come, Jesus Christ, who was also created without sin, but also would be the only man to die without sin, the only man who ever was, will, and ever will be. Uh, it says this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, the first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. Okay, it goes on, that as was the earthly man, as are those who are of the earth. And so we are from Adam, we are born with a sinful nature, we are born with sin in our lives. But it goes on, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Meaning, even though we are born with sin, by faith in the second man, by faith in Jesus, we are now born again. We have a new life, and identifying with a new man, Jesus Christ. Uh, we have a, a new uh, understanding, a new approach that we are forgiven, that we have a new life, both here in this life and for all of eternity, through that second man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Verse 49 of that passage says, and just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we now bear the image of the heavenly man. Boiled down, you want to understand Genesis 3 from a gospel lens? Verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. AKA, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, that message, that lens through which we read everything, that is, again, for kids from one to 92, and I know it's been said many times, many ways. <laughs> Our first commitment is to read and reflect on Scripture. I didn't sing last night. I did that today for you all. That was extra special. Just made that up. Okay. Number one, uh, and you're like, please don't sing to the next service. Probably better off. Number one, our commitment is to read and reflect on Scripture, and the way that we want to read and reflect on Scripture is through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just for kids, that's a commitment for all of us, for all ages. And so let me give you a few applications of how this plays out for all of us. Okay, first, umbrella statement to who we are as a church. Uh, we practice here in a church, uh, from birth to grave, that we understand we have what's called an orange philosophy 
of ministry. An orange philosophy of ministry is this understanding that in order to raise the next generation to know and love and follow Jesus, that it's gonna take the, you could say, the red, the heart of the home, that this starts at home, uh, that's what the red stands for, working side by side or interconnected with the church, which we understand to steal some language from Jesus, as the light of the world, the yellow. And so when you take the red, the heart of the home, working well together with the yellow, the light of the church, we bring them together and it makes the color orange. It's kind of like your Ziploc bag. Yellow and blue make green seal thing. Uh, only it's more important to eternity, I think. So, uh, so that's very important to everything we do. We understand everything we do, that the church and the home are to be working together, that it, you can't do one without uh, the other. And so, with that, some applications for us as a church for what this looks like. Number one, for parents and guardians and anyone who has influence on getting a kid to the light, to the yellow, to the church, we must say we have to commit to consistently getting our kids engaged in and being a part of the program uh, of what we are doing as a church when it comes to uh, what we do here, I would say primarily on the weekends, that we've got to get our kids engaged in these teaching and these education opportunities as we walk through this very exciting time starting in Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 over these three-year cycles, that we would get our kids here on a consistent and regular basis. And it just makes sense to me that this is what we would want to do. I mean, I, I would say in the same way uh, that if you're a parent, that you're going to, of course, make your kid get up for school five days a week to make sure that they are systematically working through, say, pre-algebra, algebra, algebra two, or they're not going to miss practice. They're not going to slough off and just not go to that commitment that they made in order to, to get the fundamentals, to build on those skills, to become better and better at that sport or that activity or that instrument or whatever the case may be. In the same way that we would understand a committed, consistent, and understanding to actually being able to pull off development in any of those areas, it just, I just don't get why we wouldn't have that same, if not increased understanding when it comes to the development of our kids' faith in Jesus Christ through the curriculum of his word. And so I'll get off my stump now, but it just makes sense that if that's how we view all the other important areas of development in their life, that we would have that same understanding, if not more so, when it comes to their development as followers of Jesus Christ, not as just kids, but into adulthood as well. And so number one, we have to make that the same level of commitment and um, an investment that we would, I would say, any other area of life, arguably more, okay? So that's the first thing that we can be doing as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and guardians and anyone who has influence in that space who's got a car that can drive a kid to, to here on a Sunday morning or to student life uh, at 4.30 on a Sunday for junior high and high school, okay? The second thing that we can do as parents and guardians and aunts and uncles and grandparents who have a relationship with these kids is I would say uh, take advantage of the resources that are provided to you between the weekends, between the programs for you at home to discuss with your kids. Each weekend, or excuse me, each week uh, following the weekend, we provide to parents, uh, a lot of times you've seen it maybe in a take-home sheet or an email, but now you can do this via text, uh, the content of what was shared and communicated and taught in your kid's program, small group, or class uh, the Sunday prior. And so I would encourage you that if you have, again, a relationship with a, a little one 
uh, you know, birth all the way through fifth grade, that you can get those text reminders of what's been happening uh, by texting, what is it? It's up there, whoop, first kids to 24587. And if you have, uh, again, a relationship with a kid, sixth through 12th grade in our student life program, then you can text FCC SLIFE, which is S, life, student life, uh, to 24587, and you get a prompt question each week of just one question that came out of their small group that you can, for example, when your kid comes out of class or comes out of youth group, rather than the conversation I have every time with my son, every time, and I, I got his permission, hey, bud, how was class? Good. Cool. What was good about it? I don't know. Every time. Every time. Anything, you know, it's not just here, you know, how was school? How was football? Good. What's good about it? I don't know. Okay, so it's a huge leg up to take advantage of this text because it's the power of a good question that ties into what they talk to in class or in their small group to be able to, you could say, begin to, you know, invest in and begin a conversation that can build into parent child or whoever your relationship with this kid is, discipleship is a powerful thing. That's how we bring together. It's not how we don't just say, yeah, we do this orange thing. That's how we actually pull off yellow and red, home and church working together to help these kids follow Jesus, not just as kids, but all the days of their life, okay? All right, so those are first two practical applications, particularly for those of us who are involved with kids. Third, this one is definitely for all of us, single, empty nester, widowed, college student, one to 92 and beyond, is that we all need to personally and regularly incorporate Bible reading and reflection for our own development. And for those of you who are parents or have kids in your house, we know this too. This is first for yourself, but we know that more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. So you do this, yes, for yourself, but also as an example to the young people in your life. And um, that's a whole other sermon in itself. In fact, we did that sermon last weekend. And so if you weren't here, uh, it was uh, the Built Up series and the uh, message was entitled Solitude. And you can find that online. And we talked all about how to incorporate getting alone from others so that you can get alone with God to communicate with him primarily through the use of reading and reflecting on his word. Uh, quick note, a guy came to me after the sermon last week, a dad, he said, I'm with you. My dad, I watched him every day get up an hour before the rest of us to do this very thing. And now I'm a dad of teenagers, and uh, it's like I can't even go through my day if I haven't done that same thing. Uh, and so we know more is caught than taught for those of you who are parents in that regard, okay? And then one more for everyone when it comes to when you read your Bible, one last encouragement is that when you read the scriptures, do everything you can to ensure that you are reading and viewing and understanding the scriptures through a gospel-centered lens. Ensure that you are viewing the scriptures through a gospel-centered lens. And a quick way to, I would say, encourage you in that uh, would be with one powerful question that every time, wherever you're reading in the scriptures, if you could ask this question, how does this passage, again, Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, how does this passage help me understand better or see more clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ? How does this passage help me see more clearly or understand better the gospel of Jesus Christ? Meaning, how does this passage help me see uh, my own sinfulness, which is part of the gospel? 
which is covered when we understand the gospel of how do I see more clearly God's love? How do I see more clearly God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's providence, his sovereignty over all things? How does this passage help me see that I am reconciled to Jesus Christ in the story that he is painting throughout scripture, Genesis 1, all the way to Revelation 22? I will say when it comes to doing this on a regular basis, a good study Bible will help you with this. Uh, one that I like to use uh, and, and the one I'd recommend would be the new NIV Zondervan study Bible uh, with study notes edited by D.A. Carson. Uh, that's who you're looking for, the name D.A. Carson on that. And uh, it's, just a, it's just a great study Bible for what's called biblical theology, which summed up use the scriptures to a gospel-centered hermeneutic. And so uh, you can get those. We've got some in the Mosaic Cafe, uh, or I'm sure you can get one on Amazon and other fine booksellers. And so uh, I'd recommend that one. But I'll just be honest, you know, when it comes to viewing the scriptures through a gospel-centered hermeneutic, when it comes to asking the question, how does this help me see the gospel more clearly? I'll be honest, that is not always the easiest question. I mean, between you and me, I wish sometimes that the Bible would just say, you know, just, can't you just tell me, Bible, do this and don't do that and it'd be a whole lot easier? A moralistic lens would be a whole lot simpler if the Bible just kind of shook it like a magic eight ball and it just said, okay, do this, don't do that. But the problem is, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, as it says in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet getting all the to-dos wrong and the not-to-dos not right, and when we were not doing the to-dos and we were doing the not-to-dos, it's in this, it says that while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us and that Christ died for all of that. He died for the forgiveness of all of that. And I'll be honest, when it comes to kids growing up to adults who walk away from their faith, the number of conversations I have, so you know, what, why'd you leave the church? Why aren't you involved? Just, I don't know, it just felt like a whole lot of rules, a whole lot of do's and don'ts, and I just didn't need that. It's like, we missed the gospel. We missed that this is all about us not ever being able to get all the do's and the don'ts, right? But that Jesus Christ in his goodness died for us while we were getting the do's and the don'ts all messed up. And then when it comes to the do's and the don'ts, those, aren't, those are a gift. Those are the one who died for the forgiveness of our sin, our savior, Jesus Christ, that, that he obviously has our best interest at heart to the point that he would die for us, obviously then too naturally, logically would have our best interest at heart when he lays out, live this way, don't live that way, do this and don't do that. This is a gift, this is a blessing. This is not only Jesus as savior, but Jesus as the Lord and the leader of the best possible life because that is the gospel. That is the gospel. And so to that end, both for our kids and for all of us, let's pray that God's Holy Spirit would continue to work in us to that end. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you loved us so much that you would give your one and only son that whoever places their faith in him would not die eternally, but have the gift of eternal life. And so, Father, in everything that we do, may we have that view, may we have that lens, both for us and for uh, the next generation that comes behind us. We thank you for him. We worship you. We thank you that that is what your church is built on, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and the best life following you as Lord and leader flowing out of that. May all of that be by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.